This is Life and Books and Everything, hosted by Kevin DeYoung, Justin Taylor, and Colin Hansen. Welcome to this new podcast, and it may be the first of many, or maybe the first and the last, but we are here. I am Kevin DeYoung, and I'm with my good friends, and actually good friends, not just I met this person on an email one time, and now they're good friends, but actually uh, good friends, laugh a lot, talk a lot, Colin Hansen and Justin Taylor, and uh, most people wouldn't know that we we actually talk all the time. I almost said like a group of eighth grade girls, but that would be offensive to any number of people. But every day, uh, texting, emailing, usually, did you see this funny, uh, if there's a crazy video, it's from Justin. If it's, if it's some sort of macro theory of of the way the world works, it's from Colin. If it's a Turretin quote, it's from me. <laughs> but we we talk often, and obviously been talking in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, we just had a thought, probably a bad one. But since we're talking so often, maybe we get on uh, the computer and we get to enjoy talking to one another, and we record it, and maybe there's something that's helpful to other people that remains to be seen. But I have been looking forward to getting to talk to the two of you. So thanks for joining me. And I thought, you know, we would start, we're going to talk about coronavirus, and we want to be sensitive to the difficult times that we're in. And uh, I find that many people are are walking this, you know, this tightrope, especially, Colin, you know, there's any sort of media output, Justin would too, you know, our on the one hand, people can't get enough coronavirus. They want COVID all the time. Give us your latest thoughts. And yet then there's the folks that I'm so tired of this. Get me thinking about anything else besides another talk or sermon or podcast on COVID-19. So we're going to do a, a little bit of both. But I thought we'd at least introduce who we are just a little bit. Colin Hansen. You're the editorial director, director of editorial content, the grand poobah of all things editorial at the Gospel Coalition. Colin, does that mean you would like to give out your cell phone? And if anyone disagrees with a TGC article, should they contact you directly? My um, my greatest feat, Kevin, was convincing the world that you wrote my first book, Young Restless Reformed, and that Justin runs the editorial work at TGC. So it really means that, I mean, yeah, there may, maybe there's a couple compliments that come through, but mainly it's the complaints. And I just, I'm able to just deflect. So if it's at TGC.org, you don't like it, that's Justin. If it's from that book from, you know, 12 years ago, that's Kevin. Yeah. So it's pretty yeah. easy. Uh, Colin, just say a little bit, where do you live? Tell us about your, your family and what do you do as uh, editorial director? Yeah, the uh, the first question I normally get when I uh, say that I work for the Gospel Coalition as editorial director, I get the response of, is that a full-time job? <laughs> and I, I mean, sometimes it is, I guess. Uh, so um, I'm here in Birmingham, Alabama, and we don't have any headquarters for TGC. So uh, the switch to sheltering in place and online work is pretty much a continuation 
um, of our of our normal work. And so I get to work on things like uh, our podcasts, Gospel Bound, which I host, and then also do you know all sorts of things with planning our conferences and and just uh, sort of. Uh, helping to keep everything going every single day with our with our publishing output. So I'm an elder at um, our church, Redeemer Community Church, here in in the Avondale neighborhood of Birmingham. We've lived here since 2012, eight years now, and uh, married to Lauren. We met back in college and have been married since uh, about 17 years. And then we have two children, uh, Carter and Elise, ages five and two. So we are hoping that Carter gets to start kindergarten in the fall. We shall find out. I mean, we plan to do it. We just don't know what's going to happen in the fall. You're debating, shall we school this child or shall we just raise him as an independent genius? (laughs) Yeah, just, uh, I I just, it's just amazing how many things are up in the air that suddenly you just assumed and you planned your whole life around. And all of a sudden you're thinking, huh, I don't know what that's going to look like. So anyway, we're, uh, Taking it day by day, week by week, just like everybody else. A halfway serious question, but halfway not. I mean, what in Alabama are, are people genuinely getting concerned about the football season? I mean, that that's oh, a yeah, that's a good question. That's not just a joke. That's a big deal. Yeah, well, not just a big deal for a lot of reasons, but I mean, social reasons or whatever. Um, but just economic mm-hmm. reasons would be. I mean, I think with the size and scope of of college football, it's not just Alabama. Certainly, it's. It's Justin's team, Nebraska. It's um, it's everybody else uh, that floats the rest of the sports. So if that doesn't happen, all kinds of different dominoes start to fall. So no, there's. I would say this week was the week when the worry started to kick in, and where we started to think, wait a minute, two thirty p.m. on Saturdays, um, there's not going to be anything there. Um, and so I, I mean, I think colleges, as we've seen seem to be especially vulnerable because the sports are obviously tied to actual education, at least in theory. And, uh, and if you don't have people on campus, I just, I don't know how you, how you do football separately from that, but it just makes me think how are Christian colleges? I I don't know how a lot of private schools or other schools are going to make it if they don't have anybody showing up in the fall. So a lot of questions, no answers, but yes, uh, very serious. I actually had a, a good friend of mine who um, is close to the situation, reached out to me wondering, what do you think is going to happen? And I knew that was probably pretty bad when he was reaching out to me wondering. I thought, man, even the people who are in the middle of this stuff, they don't know. They just don't know. I've just never been, I've never seen something like that before. We're going to come back to, to all that in just a minute. Uh, Justin, you you wrote the ESV or you, you what do you do at Crossway? I just wrote the Old Testament part. Uh, <laughs> well, that's most of it. That's true. J E P or D? Who knows? Yeah, right. the J, obviously. Yeah, that's true. The J is for <laughs> Jehovah. It's for Justin. <laughs> oh, I'm uh, at Crossway. I've been there 14 years, and my current role is executive vice president of book publishing and book publisher. So, uh, Crossway actually started as a gospel tract company almost 80 years ago, uh, founded by Lane Dennis's uh, father with his mother in an apartment in Minneapolis and added on the book side of things in the late 70s uh, and then added the ESV in 2001. So um, the book publishing side is what I oversee, and Dane Ortland oversees the Bible publishing side of the company. And Justin, you have uh, a wife. How many kids? 
I have five kids. One wife. One wife. Very good. And and you moved from Chicago. You still work at Crossway, but you know Wheaton, Chicago, Downers Grove Metroplex, and you moved to Sioux City. And the three of us know all of us know Sioux City in different ways, and we have great esteem. Any city that can boast of a monument to the only man who died on the Lewis and Clark expedition is a very fine city. But Sergeant survived everything else except Sioux City. City. (laughs) Not to mention the airport code. Don't the airport airport code? code. Yes, I flew out of Sucks many times. Uh, No, I saw a sign yesterday that said "Roofing Sucks." It was like company, and like. So, Justin, why did you why did you move to Sioux City, and, and how's it been? I mean, it's not the move that you typically see, you know, forty somethings making from Chicago to Sioux City. Yeah, we were really attracted to kind of the art museums and the sports uh, first teams out of Sioux City. <laughs> Are there still the Explorers? They, I Sioux think City they still exist. Still yeah, yeah. Oh, there's here. Yeah, uh, my wife and I grew up in Sioux City. She actually grew up in. Uh, was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, but moved to Sioux City in elementary school where we met. Um, so I'm a Sioux City native, uh, but we got married right out of college the summer after we graduated and moved up to Minneapolis. We're up there for uh, seven years and then down to Chicagoland for 14 years. So it means our whole married life, um, 22 years now, we've never lived within hundreds of miles of our family. Mm-hmm. Uh, her parents are both in their seventies. Both my parents are in their seventies. I've got a brother with six kids in town. She's got a sister with six kids in town. So in terms of both of our families, it's kind of, uh, the hub. And when the possibility opened up that I could continue to work for Crossway remotely, uh, since August, I've kind of been in a pattern of flying back there every other week and leading the publishing meetings, we kind of bunch them together. Uh, so it's worked pretty well until the whole world started working remotely a few weeks ago here. Uh, how, how have you found it, you know, on the scale of, boy, I, I miss living in a big city and all that it affords to, boy, this is my Rod Dreher experience uh, moving back home, which I, I don't know if that actually did go well or not. It didn't go well. Yeah. He moved away again. Yeah. <laughs> and he moved for, to Baton Rouge. So, so, yeah. So those are not the, the two poles, but uh you know, is it a is it a dream or you know, it's just a it's another place and at least families nearby. Yeah, I think it's been a little bit of both. I mean, I one of the things that I've realized, which I knew intellectually, and I think Colin knows very well from his own story, is that you can always have these idealistic um, things that maybe Rod Greer was in that that camp to some degree. Um, you know, thinking, okay, all my problems will be solved if we can just move back home and be close to family. And of course, the problem is that uh, you bring yourself with you. <laughs> so you bring all of your problems wow. and your quirks and your hangups and uh, your sin patterns and all those sort of things. But it has been really nice. I mean, yeah, I, when I was a senior in high school, age 18 was the last time I could just see my parents or see a sibling anytime that I wanted. You know, off at college, you get to see them a few times a semester perhaps. And then when you're married and then when you start having kids and you're talking about a few times a year. So to have that blessing as parents are aging and to be able to do a job that I still love 
Um, it's been really nice and, and especially nice for our kids, uh, you know, for them to have a dozen cousins in town that they can hang out with and connect with. Um, the Lord's been kind to us through the whole thing. That's really great. All right. I'm going to transition and we're going to, uh, I have a lot of questions. We'll see if how many we can get through just thinking about COVID-19. Let's start here. We were talking last week or so about leadership in the midst of a crisis. And I, and I don't want us to, there's lots of people who can do rank punditry on the president or the task force or their governor or their local county officials. And I, I don't want to do that, but I, I want to think more broadly, what, what, what does good leadership look like in the midst of either this crisis or just a crisis? And Colin, start with you because you are so good at pulling in historical reference. And you said something to the two of us about, well, it, you know, the, the generals in the Civil War, especially on the on the Union side, were pretty disastrous for a while. So wax eloquent for us, either historically or present day. Why is it so hard to, to find good leadership in the midst of a crisis? Tell us, what does bad leadership look like, good leadership? Give us some thoughts. Well, you've heard it said before, Kevin, that uh, generals are always fighting the last battles. And so we're oriented toward those crises that we have experience with. We're oriented toward those events that we understand. And this may have been something that, you know, some people warned about, that's for sure. Uh, one thing that's emerged is that uh, President Bush, George W. Bush, apparently had read, I guess, about the 1918, um, you know, flu influenza pandemic, right? And so he took it upon himself to to create task forces. And Yuval Levine wrote a really interesting article about having worked in the Bush administration and having no idea why they spent scarce time on this and didn't necessarily really amount to much. But that kind of leadership is rare. And I immediately began to think about how whether this is a, a two-month thing or a 20-month thing or I mean, I was talking with a, a family member today who said she's been telling their kids that this is something that they'll read about in their history books coming up. And, and I do think, I'm, not because of necessarily the mass death, though, of course, the death totals have just been distressing, but just because of how it's going to change our patterns, I think, going forward to prevent things like this in the future. But what you look back on with the Civil War, and also I would add World War One is a good example of this as well. Uh, is you have people who are equipped and trained and developed to be able to fight a certain kind of of threat. And so with the Civil War, it was more or less like the Napoleonic Wars. And with World War One, you had like the Franco-Prussian War and things like that that had come earlier. And so you have things like in World War One, these massive British cavalry charges. And you think, are you serious? into machine gun fire and entrenched artillery? Yeah, absolutely. They did because that was seen as the heroic. That was seen as, you know, the, the Elan. That was, that was seen as like the epitome of, you know, the, the esprit de corps of the army. And of course, all of that, you know, you're basically just harvesting the cream of your crop to death immediately before finally a couple years pass and the politicians get thrown out the generals get thrown out, and you find people who have been able to innovate on a local level. 
Uh, so, I mean, taking World War One as, as an example there, you had people develop certain kind of infiltration tactics, uh, tactics, excuse me. You also had people develop, um, obviously, defensive tactics, tanks, you know, for the first time. And so those kind of people emerge uh, because they've learned to adapt. And usually they've been the people who have been implementing things at the lower levels. So what I'm looking for right now are those people, and I, I certainly includes church leaders as well, looking for the church leaders, the state and local leaders, and the national leaders who are going to emerge, and medical professionals, obviously, as well, who have learned how to implement things on a, a local basis, and all of a sudden we're able to see that, and, we're be, and, and it spreads and it can adapt other places. You know, at the outset of this, we kept hearing so much about ventilators, uh, my brother works for General Motors in Detroit, and so all kinds of things. We're going to have to turn this around right away. Use you know, inventing, you know, invoking the Defense Production Act to be able to take over and nationalize these industries to make ventilators. And then this, uh, and then recently, the New York Times comes out with a major profile, uh, major analysis of New York City that shows that doctors are trying to keep anybody off ventilators that they can, because it's now seen as a drastic step that's very problematic. And they're trying to address it with all sorts of other, you know, other means. That's what I'm getting at here. That's what leadership looks like. It's probably going to be not the top down leaders. I'm not picking on President Trump here. I'm talking at any level. It's going to be solutions that come from, you know, that bubble up. And those people gain credibility and they will gain then influence across the country and even also the world. Yeah, you mentioned the book, uh, two good books. So you mentioned John Barry. Great influenza. So that's the big sort of er text of reading about the the 1918 Spanish flu. I, I admit I have it on my phone, and I was listening to it. And the same guy who narrates it, he does a very good job. But he he narrates a lot of books, and he narrated the first book I I had him narrate on my Audible was a spy thriller. So I just hear him talking about the dead. I just can't do it. So I switched over. It was a bit too much. So I switched over to Pale Rider by Laura Spiney, Spinney, Spinney. Uh, it's very good. It's British red and uh, it's, it has more international scope than just America. So those two books are good. And it's so sobering to think about 50 to a hundred million people died in 1918, more than world war one, probably more than world war one and world war two put together. It's sort of, a strange, like providential coincidence that at the start of this whole outbreak, Ross Douthat was trying to set out on his book tour for the Decadent Society, and it's a very you know specific definition of, of decadence there, which we won't get into. But it, it does it does dovetail into this because you think about what we've been on both sides of the aisle, what we've been talking about for you know political leadership. It, it has been a, a kind of reality TV show. And that just cuts across the board. And the sort of things that we, we fight about and the sort of brush fires that come up and personality conflicts. And, and now suddenly uh, it, it seems like the ideal leader would be someone who's, who's actually not ideological. You know, ideology is good in some sense, but in, in this sense, just somebody who's absolutely level-headed, doesn't care who gets the credit, wants to just give me the best solutions, get me all the best information I can. Uh, Justin, how, how else would you think about whether it's at a, 
national, international, local, or just a pastoral level even? What, what does good leadership look like when we deal with a crisis like this? Yeah, I think good leadership requires steady and faithful and measured communication. And I think all three of those are probably important. Um, you know, if you don't know what to think about something, it's tempting just to not say anything at all. But as a leader, you don't have that luxury just to remain totally silent and to let somebody else lead because we're all going to follow leaders, right? Unless you're uh, wired in such a way that you're um, a Luddite or very monkish, we're going to be listening to to some voice. So as a leader, I think we want to be speaking into the situation. And yet the great temptation, especially in the age of social media, is uh, I need to become the conduit for the world of the latest medical advice or the latest death count or the latest update on the the testing protocols. And so therefore, I'm going to tweet every 15 minutes the latest breaking news. It is tempting. I the way that I'm wired, I'm, I'm inclined toward that. And uh, some people might think, well, why is he saying that? This is, that's exactly what he does. <laughs> I try not to. Um, but the problem with that is, is manifold. And Kevin, maybe at some point you might want to talk about the spirituality of the church. Um, I'm not operating as a, as a minister of the gospel per se, or, or with a specific office, but as a Christian leader, we need to be cautious to stay in our lane, to have epistemic humility, to realize I don't know everything. Um, the more quick we are to speak and to try to be a virtual CNN that's constantly running updates is that we're undoubtedly going to say things incorrectly. Um, we're going to lose proportionality. More importantly for a Christian, I think, is the fact that we have something that CNN can't provide, won't provide, Fox News won't either. And that's a, a larger perspective. It's God's perspective. Uh, we see through a glass dimly, but God has given us his revelation. And as careful interpreters being guided by the spirits, uh, operating out of church tradition and history, we should be able to speak into this moment and to give a unique message that nobody else is. So I think we need to be able to kind of pull back and actually think and be careful about what we're saying and how we're saying it, uh, but not just to go silent. So just to give two quick examples, I think, of what Andy Crouch did early on with his writing on analyzing the situation and making some recommendations. Um, you know, Andy was spending hours and hours and hours a day, day after day, week after week, working on this while everybody else was just ignoring the situation or firing off things. Um, you know, he did his homework. John Piper, I think from another level, theologically, uh, wrote a book very quickly on coronavirus and Christ, but he essentially locked himself in his study for a few days and drew upon 50 years of pastoral ministry and even longer of Bible reading to produce something, I think, very helpful for the world. Yeah, and, and I don't know if, you know, anyone, I would say anyone but our moms will listen to this, but I think it's optimistic to think our moms are going to listen to this. <laughs> uh, if you do, though. I don't know how to listen to a podcast, you might. Yeah, well, it's my mom's birthday today, so happy birthday, mom, if you ever listen to this a few days later. But, you know, you mentioned the spirituality of the church, and I don't have to launch into a lecture on on that, which has its detractors, and understandably so, but... 
what, what I mean by the spirituality of the church is my sense and feeling of constraint as a gospel minister that I speak to things that I have some authority and expertise to speak to, and that is not epidemiology. doesn't mean I can't be a good reader and, and know something. Uh, it doesn't, but it means I'm, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not uh, one who's modeling these things. And so uh, I, have, I have had some dismay to see folks, um, maybe people we know, friends, but just people even that we follow in our, our Twitter feed. You know, it's one thing if you were the former head of the FDA. Yeah, you could be wrong for sure, but you, you do have some, some reason to speak to these things. Whereas as a minister of the gospel, what, what I want to speak to are the gospel implications, how this might, you know, relate to church history. It might relate to texts in the Bible. And that's what you said. That's, you know, that's what Piper did. He didn't write a book about coronavirus. He wrote a book about how does this particular moment in history, how does the Bible speak to it? And the Bible speaks to every moment in history. And so I think it's really important uh, as leaders that we, you know, it's a cliche, but that we stay in our lane and all of a sudden we know for sure that uh, the worst case scenarios are true. And if you don't believe that, then I'm going to tweet you into the grave. Or we know that this is hashtag just the flu or barely more than that, or all of our governments overreact. It's not to say that, you know, there might not be right or wrong answers on all of those questions, but I want people to think uh, when they come to my church or when they, if, if they have any reason to listen to me or to anyone like the three of us, it's because of careful work we're doing to, to try to think God's thoughts after him and apply them to situations, not to be an expert in mathematical mo modeling and the latest pathogen. And we should say that uh, there is such a thing as having more than one vocation. I think of somebody like Lyman Stone, who's a missionary in Hong Kong, uh, who has expertise on modeling and research and numbers. And so he can speak into it. Um, or Miguel you know, Nunez. Yeah, Miguel Nunez. Good yeah, example. he's a great example. Did a wonderful article at TGC early on. But I think a good rule of thumb is, you know, if it was New Year's Day, 2020 and you didn't know how to spell the word epidemiology, maybe spit <laughs> this one out in terms of your analysis of the science of the situation. No, I, I keep waiting when there's the international crisis on what really happened in John Witherspoon's life. And then I'm on it. I'm tweeting all day, every day. Until that happens, I'm going to show some restraint. Colin, did you have anything before yeah. I ask? Yeah, Kevin, do you, do you remember you, you were talking about that non-ideological leadership you remember that's exactly what happened uh, with Spanish flu. Do you remember which leader was elevated in the aftermath of it as that sort of non-ideological, efficiency-driven leader? I didn't get that far in the book yet. Um, <laughs> Herbert Hoover. Well, yeah, that was, that was my educated guess. There you I go. So, well, so got to be a spoiler alert, Colin. I know that's true. Oh, spoiler alert from almost 100 years ago. So, yeah, kind Hoover, of like spoiler alert, Trolls movie is about celebrating differences. Okay, guys, I just, <laughs> sorry, sorry to ruin it for you. <laughs> well, I, uh, Hoover was, you know, he was the guy who helped lead the U.S. efforts for recovery in Europe. 
and was amazingly good, not with only with the, with the flu, but obviously with the wars and with the war. And there is, I think one of the things that we're talking about here is the myth of the transference of expertise. Hoover was very good at that. He was a very bad president. And what happened to him? He didn't know how to adjust to those changing circumstances, um, which, you know, in the Great Depression, which unfortunately is the next level of, of historical example that we're going to be dealing with now. But and that was that was one thing that I was just thinking about there of, you know, just you're good at one thing doesn't mean you're good at other things. And the other is that this stuck with me. I just saw David Brooks write something. The He said the worst posers make pessimistic predictions mm-hmm. about what the next year is going to look like. They have no clue, but I admire their attempts to project gravitas. I saw that. And it occurred to me that, um, you know, you can do this in so many different directions. So you can pretend like you know better than everybody else and that this is all just a flu and it doesn't mean anything. You can also pretend like you're the only person who sees that this is going to change everything. And if you don't prepare right now, then you're going to be in big trouble. I think one group of people is attracted to one. Mm-hmm. I think kind of the the in crowd on Twitter is attracted, I think, more of what Brooks is warning about here. But I, I, this has just been hard. I, I like to keep up with things. I like to be able to feel like I know what's going on. And I feel like a month later, I still have no clue. I, I heard one commentator say that they should call it the confirm your priors virus. Yeah, no kidding. Because uh, especially early on, it just seemed you thought socialism was great. Coronavirus tells us that's what we need. Capitalism was good. Coronavirus tells us, uh, you know, you didn't like Trump. Well, you really don't like him now. You're you're all in for Trump. So coronavirus just for for a lot of folks confirms everything that they already thought. Everything they already thought about the world, already thought about politics. Coronavirus confirms it. Uh, which I want to go to something that Justin, you said a week or so ago, you're going to tweet. And I, I apologize. I don't see every single one of your tweets. So I don't know if you did tweet this or not. Uh, but I can email them to you if you want. Okay, I'll get them on alert. <laughs> but it was something to the effect of, uh, hey, sometime when this is all done, a, a bunch of people are going to say what we should have done was really obvious and why didn't we do it? And uh, it reminds me of a book almost by that title by Duncan Watts. And I'm hoping to write up a little blog post on it in the next week. But it's called Everything is Obvious and then has a little asterisk on the bottom. It says, once you know the answer. And it's, it's kind of against some of Malcolm Gladwell's popularization of certain theories about how decisions are made or influencers or the wisdom of crowds. But the basic, basic thesis of the book is there's a whole lot of uh, looking at a situation after the fact and then saying, wow, it was so obvious we should have done X. And he has a, a lot of examples of the sort of circular argument that says X worked because X contained the characteristics of X. And it's, it doesn't really advance any argument. I remember one, one example in the book is he was talking about a, a book review of Harry Potter that said Harry Potter was a runaway bestseller because it had a, a Cinderella story and it had three friends and two of them were men and one was a woman and it had some of the real world and some of the magic world. And it, well, you pretty much just said Harry Potter worked because it was Harry Potter. 
And so if our if our if there are 15 theses that could be true with the given evidence, then it's hard to say that the answer was really as obvious as we thought. Uh, so, Justin, what, what did you mean by that tweet, which I probably butchered what you were actually going to say, but I think I got the, the gist of your concern and, and any caution you have for folks as inevitably the, the uh, looking back will come fast and furious in articles and books for many years to come. Yeah, I think the way that I put it was, whatever you're doing right now, stop and write down what you think is going to happen over the next month. And save that because there's going to be entire books written about whatever you thought. You're a complete doofus. <laughs> and the whole point, and I, I never did end up tweeting it. Um, I was saving it for a podcast. <laughs> here we um, are. Here it is. I get to unveil it. The whole point of, of saying that is hopefully to get us to have a little epistemic humility. Um, Colin and I both had um, a professor, John Woodbridge at, at Trinity, a church historian who used to talk about how historians can move the players in their narratives around like chess pieces. And to Woodbridge's credit, he, he always had empathy for them because they're dead and they can't talk back. Um, there's a, a bit of that going on. And so it's, it's some of it's to give us a little bit of epistemic humility. And by epistemic humility, I just mean uh, humility, kind of a, a chastened realization that I, I don't know a lot. And therefore, that should give me some pause about my level of confidence, whether in predicting or critiquing. Um, and also to give a little bit of humility or empathy, rather, towards those in the past um, who yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, and um, it's much easier for us to judge now. Uh, but we are dealing with a limited amount of information, and we are reliant upon experts. I think the three of us agree we should not just be looking for uh, a talk show radio host who doesn't have any expertise and relying upon his opinion. We should be listening to the guy who used to run the FDA and is thinking about this every single day and has been thinking about it long before any of us ever thought about uh, pandemics and infectious diseases. The trouble there is that, that even relying upon the experts is difficult. They're operating with limited amount of information as well, and they disagree with each other. So, yeah, I, I don't know what the solution to that is other than to just acknowledge um, when speaking that we see partially and this may be incorrect and this is what I think might happen and to own up um, when we make mistakes. Well, don't you think the only solutions, Justin, are time or divinity? I mean, and, and we can't be divine, so the three of us love history because you always have the answers in history. But the beautiful thing about history is that Good history gives you a sense of contingency. And it occurs to me that the, I mean, I'll put it this way. I have just been exhausted lately. And I was asking a friend of mine today, is Twitter changed or have I just changed? And he said, no, Twitter's the same, Colin. Because I said, I'm having a hard time here. Because it looks like everybody knows all the answers and they just hate everybody else. 
And I was like, this is just exhausting. Like, give me the optimists, give me the builders. I want to know, I, I want to see something hopeful here. I want to see people investing into something instead of just tearing each other down. And it occurs to me that any, you know, list of great Western leaders of the 19th and 20th century would certainly include Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln, for pretty much his entire presidency until 1864-65, was seen at late 1864-65, was seen as a total failure, was seen as a horrible president, I mean, who caused this great calamity. Churchill, obviously, you know, through into 1940 when he becomes prime minister, and then it becomes anything but obvious after that, when he presides over the greatest military defeat in British history at Dunkirk, which we now, of course, we understand differently, we make movies about. That's not how it was seen at the time. And so the only answer, if you're not God, and we're not God, thanks to God, um, but then you only have time. That's the only thing that can solve that problem. I I don't know that there is another one. So I love that solution, Justin, because now we're living in sort of like real-time history uh, with the way social media works, and we project so much confidence on so little basis. I, I don't right. I don't get it. the thing that I was going to say earlier, going right in line with that, Colin, is that this is a great opportunity for us to be self-critical. Kevin was talking earlier about confirming your priors. And for me, it's really easy to say, oh, yeah, look at that guy. He's he's out there doing that. And that guy's doing it from the opposite perspective. But in what ways am I tempted to do that? So I have been on uh, the perspective um that this is going to be really bad and going to be really catastrophic and all the social distancing is necessary. And therefore finding myself saying like, I want the numbers to confirm what I've said publicly and what I believe. And as I uh, get into arguments within my family, um, that temptation of confirming your priors is not just for those bad people out there talking on CNN or Fox news, but it's inside my heart. That's a temptation for me to care more about me being right than the truth prevailing. And all of us should want uh, President Trump to be successful in this. All of us should want the virus to stop. All of us should want everything to be able to reopen. But our our political inclinations and our uh, predictions of record getting in the way of um, rational thinking along those lines, that's a difficult issue. It reminds me of whoever has said this phrase that I've stolen, but we are not so much rational beings as we are rationalizing. That's how we tend to, to think. We're, we're not just uh, cool, rational actors, but we're always looking for a way to process information that rationalizes, not always, but that's sort of endemic to the human fallen nature. I, I want to piggyback off some things both of you guys were saying, and I don't want to ask for a prognostication. Colin had a, a really good article uh, a week or two ago on just looking at some the, some general but but measured kind of predictions yeah. but i want us to think optimistically maybe silver lining what what do you think on the other side of this whatever the other side is months or years what 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 things might be different that uh, whether small or large that would actually be positive uh, and, and I have a few because I knew I was going to ask that question. Uh, one, I think at least initially, and I hope it lasts, I think you're going to find Christians absolutely thrilled to be together in corporate worship. Now, it's not going to be flipping a switch. You're going to 
it's going to be rolling into it in smaller groups. But I, I don't think that virtual church, I think this is, people are thankful for what we can get. I don't think this is leading to a, a boom of virtual church. I think people are going to realize I really miss singing together with brothers and sisters in church. So I think there's going to be a renewed enthusiasm for meeting together for corporate worship. Uh, I wonder if, and I hope this maybe sticks in my own life, I wonder if there'll be some good simplification. You know, we're all missing things. We're missing sports things. We're, I'm so, you know, I love the Olympics. I'm, uh, I love the Tour de France. I love all these sports things. And those are, you know, lesser things compared to so many other issues out there. But we're all missing things. And yet there is something in our simplified lives. I know my family of 10, we're having dinner around the table every night. That hardly ever happens when the kids all have sporting events and youth group. And uh, I, I'm eager for those things to come back. But there's a simplification of life, which I hope we learn from and we don't just rush back into the madness. And I'll just give one more, which uh, is not original to me, but it has been heartening in the midst of this to see what you might call lower esteemed sort of professions receive a lot of pats on the back. Doctors, being a doctor has for all time been a higher esteemed profession. But nurses, you know, maybe, but but for nurses to get that, for truck drivers, for grocery store workers, I mean, you go to the grocery store and you see, you know, the 18-year-old kid checking out there with a, a plexiglass in between you and him now at my grocery store, so there's no contact. And you think, thank you. Well, actually, don't think it. Hopefully, you say it to some of these people. Thank you for working. So I hope that maybe some of that will stick, the value and dignity of, of work in a way that can often be missed unless you're in one of those thinky kind of professions and the sort of work that we often take for granted right now are, are literally keeping our country open. And, and I hope some of that appreciation sticks with us. Other things optimistically that you think maybe on the other side of this, we have some silver linings. I think Kevin about the families, um, uh, the, my next door neighbor, when this was that first weekend of the shutdown and they had just announced schools were going to be closed for maybe like two weeks or something. And I said to her, yeah, it's going to be eight weeks at least. And she just looked at me shocked, like eight weeks. That's not possible. I, I can't do that as a family. Both of them, both of them work. Um, so the, usually the kids are, are taken care of and she's having to think work at home. Husband's a doctor, so he's going to have to go to the hospital, especially if all this flares up. I'm going to be working full-time at home and take care of my kids without any school. Of course, that's impossible to be able to do. And yet, um, clearly, we're all carrying a lot of strain. And I think that's one of the first things. There's almost basically like a collective exhale that says, whoa, we were carrying a lot when this thing starts to let up. But uh, I think a lot of families are going to realize it wasn't quite as bad as they thought um, or, or that it drew them together with a formative memory um, that helped them to understand that created a sense of resilience and solidarity and bond between them. And so in the predictions piece that I did, I tried to pair the positive with the negative um, because I because I think the predictions are not going to go in one direction. That's part of uh, worrying about. I'm not wanting to confirm my priors, 
Um, but just understand that this is going to be a complex dynamic. And so that's why I mentioned with the families that I think there might even be increased um, rush to to marriage. Um, not like shotgun marriages, but just an appreciation that, you know, we don't need the big fancy wedding or things like that. We just, we need each other together before God. And uh, though I do think at the same time, I'm not sure the family sizes, um, the young family accepted, uh, are going to increase in, in general uh, here. So anyway, but I, I think, I think that's, um, you know, I think, I think, I think my family is my immediate, you know, nuclear family is is pretty close, but it's been remarkable how much closer we've gotten and and just how much stronger we've gotten because of what of of going through this. That's what I'm hopeful about. Justin, any silver linings you you're hoping for? Yeah, I agree with what you guys just said and Kevin when you were talking about the unsung uh, vocations that we don't usually think about. I saw a little video on Twitter of uh, a nursing staff applauding the cleaners at the hospital. Um, somebody has to clean up after surgery. Somebody has to bleach the floors every night. I mean, that's, you know, we think about nurses and we thank nurses when we're in the hospital. We never think twice about somebody who has to clean and, you know, they're, they're doing heroic work. So yeah, I, I think there's going to be a lot of that. Um, a couple of additional things in terms of the church, I think communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist uh, in particular, whether a church celebrates virtual communion and tries to let families do it at home and do it in conjunction with the video service, just leave aside the agreements or disagreements about that. I still think there's a palpable hungering to do that as a gathered body. And I think that's been a, a weakness in evangelical churches in particular, and when you take something away, people begin to miss it and not just think that it's just this little ritual that we did weekly or monthly or quarterly or whatever. So I think that's going to be a positive thing. Um, another, and maybe this is extra optimistic, but I wonder if subtly over time, some worship and congregational singing practices will change. Um, I think if you are in a mega church and you go and you basically just sit there and listen, and it's the predominant sound is not congregational singing, but rather uh, performance, and it's not especially singable, but it sounds great. That may be attractive and feel fine. But we're, when we're in this weird situation of of watching stuff online, um, you know, service that I've watched is just a husband and wife. He's got the guitar, and the two of them are singing together. It's very simplified and stripped down and it's beautiful and the lyrics of certain songs and hymns whether it's the old fanny crosby songs or it's a modern getty song those resonate in a way that kind of even very good uh, contemporary rock style worship songs just don't i mean they again they might be fine at a certain level and the theology might be fine it's not the sort of thing that you're going to be sitting around when somebody's dying on their deathbed singing some of these songs. So there may be a greater recovery of simplicity and singability with congregational worship in particular. So there are a couple of things that come to mind on my end. Um, we're, we're coming up on probably testing our five listeners' <laughs> patience. But if, if anyone's made it this far, they're surely eager for us to go five more minutes. So my, my, my last question which is a great question to end any podcast with with you guys, 
is whether it's related to the virus or not, what, what are you reading? Uh, you could talk about, even if you're not reading it, what, what are you publishing? But books, and I know right now we, we can't get books from some places in two days like we're used to, although Crossway will probably get it to you lickety split. Uh, so any, any books that you've been reading, uh, I, I'll give you a few though. The first one you, you may, you probably don't want to read right now, but I finished it, you know, right before all this started, we had, uh, Phil Riken giving his Lord of the Ring lectures at RTS Charlotte here about two months ago. And they were, they were excellent. If you guys have never heard him, seen him do that, if he ever does it near, they're really good, but we had lunch with him and I just said, um, give me a fiction book. I don't read a lot of fiction. And he said, uh, oh, there's a guy, David Walton, who's, a, who's at 10th Prez, and he's won you know, the science fiction awards for writing. So he, he said his book, The Genius Plague, uh, you won't be able to put down. So I don't read a lot of fiction books, but Phil was right. I, I read that in just a few days. Now, it's about a plague, so you may not. <laughs> it's about a mushroom plague that spreads and infects the whole world and almost leads to uh, – nuclear holocaust so it may not be the uplift that you're looking for in this moment but it was a different kind of book than i usually read in a, a page turner uh what else am i reading i am just finishing the marston biography on edwards i read the short version can you guys believe i never read the the, the longer version of it only because you've told us that I know that was legitimately shocking. Shocking. I know. Isn't that a for shame? I'm trying to think what else is uh, I'm reading a lot of stuff from my RTS class, which is fun. I'm reading through the Federalist Papers. Uh, I've read through some of that before. And uh, a book that maybe would be a separate subject in a subsequent podcast, but came out a couple of years ago called No Property in Man. And it's about the slavery, anti-slavery debates in 1787 for the constitution. And he's trying to push back a little bit on the, the dominant narrative of the last 30 years that the constitution was basically just a capitulation to pro-slavery forces. Now he says it's a, it's a paradoxical document for sure. And uh, it certainly had capitulations, otherwise it couldn't have passed and been ratified. But he's making, I think, a convincing argument that Madison and some others, even though they were complicit in slavery in their own personal lives in different ways, uh, made a stand not to include any language where slave there would be property in man, but that they made a principled decision uh, with all the things that you know the three-fifths compromise is demeaning and, and got wrong, that they wanted to call slaves persons and not property. And in the 1830s and 40s, he points out that the abolitionists look back to that and they look back to Madison, even though he owned slaves, as really a precursor to their cause and found something there in the Constitution, although pro-slavery forces had their own argument. So that's just fascinating. It has some resonance with current debates. Uh, I have about half a dozen other books that I'm reading on my shelf. But what, what else? Books. I'd love to talk about books. I just, uh, I'm adding this question, Kevin, to the end of my Gospel Bound interviews. I did that with Eric Larson. So there's one of the books there, Splendid in the Vile, about Winston Churchill. And uh, that was so good. A lot of the people who've responded to me about that podcast have brought up that question in the end. I mean, I'm usually interviewing authors. And so ask the authors what they're mm -hmm. reading. 
Um, just not a you know pretty basic idea right there, but one that pays off. Uh, so I think I think Kevin, I don't know anybody who reads as many books at the same time as you. And also, um, I remember seeing you uh, coming to visit you once while we were both on the road. And I think you'd brought, I don't know how long this trip was. It was maybe like three days or something. I think you packed like eight books or something for those three days. And um, But the thing is, you've inspired me. I also love that you weren't using a Kindle on those eight books. I don't. You were hiking them along. So now I've adopted some of your policy. I tend to read at least four books at the same time, mainly just because of my moods. I don't know. And especially if I've had a long day of book editing uh, or writing, I'm not usually wanting to jump in on something of the same genre. So I want to keep my keep my options open there. So is this a safe um, is this a safe space for me to mention that I'm reading um, Jane well, Austen then, for the first time? Oh, Jane Austen. Good for you. <laughs> so yeah. you, you, were, you were close. Uh-huh. You were close. I, I've never read Sense and Sensibility. I've seen the movie a couple times. Multiple okay. versions. So, yeah. uh, so, but I'm reading Jane Austen, and I, I said to Lauren, my wife, last night, it takes a lot of concentration for me to to read Jane Austen. So this is not a like a bedtime read that's really easy. Like I'm having to lock in her sentences, the characters, the social dynamics that just don't come naturally to me. But um, she. Uh, Austin in, in Sense and Sensibility has a moment where the kind of lout of the brother uh, who abandons his sisters um, kind of finds that the sisters could make, um, they might be able to make a, a, an advantageous marriage. And he says that he was so much interested in the marriage as a way of atoning uh, for his own failure to be able to care for them. And it was almost like he was so eager to do it precisely so that he could cover up for what he had failed to do. And I thought that was a brilliant insight of those human dynamics from Jane Austen. But uh, since this is probably not a safe space and I can't say those things, I will instead say um, I'll stick more to my script here. And I will say in the last uh, week or so, I uh, finished a couple books that were really, really fascinating. One, and I'm kind of a I'm a bit of a, a snob reader. So meaning that if everybody likes something, it makes me a little bit skeptical. You only like indie music. Exactly. I'm the indie music person. I'm an early. You like Stephen Stevens until everyone did. Exactly. That is that is who I am as a reader, and I think I just have to be honest and admit that. I I I put aside those scruples, and I took one of Justin Taylor's recommendations, and I read Robert Caro's Working Research. That's such a good book. Writing. Oh my gosh, that is a good book. That's really good. Wow. Can I interject one thing? Yes. If you listen to it on Audible, he speaks about this slowly. <laughs> <laughs> you can put it on four times speed very quickly. It sounds normal. Yeah. <laughs> well, Caro is, um, I mean, I think, um, you know, we all, we all love, uh, love history, love writing, love reading. And he inspired me just to know that I don't think it's my life calling. It might be Justin's. I don't know that it's my calling to spend decades of my life writing about one person, but I am really glad for the people who do have that calling. And I'm grateful for that. And so it just kind of inspires me and intimidates me to realize, yeah, that's not what I'm ever going to do. I don't think I'm going to do that with somebody as he did uh, with, with, uh, with Moses and then also with, um, Anyway, or yeah, that's the name, right? Yeah, Robert Moses, and then also with the different Moses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I had to clarify there. I was like, I oh, remember my context. 
the other I was going to quickly mention is one that we've talked about um, a little bit uh, just personally, which is why I wanted to bring it up. And that is our, our friend Daniel K. Williams, um, his book, The Election of the Evangelical, Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, and the Presidential Contest of 1976. I don't expect a lot of people are going to read this book, um, but I do hope I'll be able to do an interview with him about it because I, I think that the year 1976 is one of very significant ongoing implications for evangelical identity, as well as uh, for for American politics, which are, you know, important perennial topics there. So I'll leave it there, but I, I like nothing more than talking about talking about books and reading. All right, one more, then I'll give Justin the last word. <laughs> uh, back when it seemed like socialism was going to be a big deal <laughs> until every, until Bernie wiped out and the coronavirus came, uh, I read Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism by Joshua Miravich. And uh, Miravichik, how you say it. Yeah, it, 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 you don't know either way. Say it with it, confidence and say it loud. That's all you get. Maravchik uh, is really good. It's not a, um, you know, he's not in favor of socialism, but it's not a, a, a quick flyby. It's a history book. It's a well-researched history book. And it's someone who actually grew up in socialism, parents very committed to it, and has come to see the dangers in it uh, historically. And so people just interested in wanting to know the actual history from the French Revolution down through the present and all its many permutations. Uh, it was a very worthwhile book. Justin, you get the last word on some books for us. Yeah. Um, I don't really read books. I just publish them. So a <laughs> uh, couple a of audible books. What's that? Saying it's not a prerequisite to be a book editor. A uh, couple that I've been listening to on audio or audible, uh, Eric Larson's um, book on Churchill and his early years, uh, which has been enjoyable, especially with a nice British narrator, uh, James K.A. Smith, um, another British narrator on the road with Augustine. Uh, really, really insightful. He, he is a, even if you disagree with Smith on things here and there, he's a very, very good writer. I sort of wish there was a, a blue collar version. It's a little bit of a highbrow book to some degree, but um, really have, have um, been struck by some of the insights in that book. Maybe I'll mention just a few uh, CrossFit books coming down the pipeline. Um, is it coming down the pike or the pipe? I've always I was just it. about to correct myself. I think you just combined pike with pipeline, and it kind of it kind of worked. I'm the Michael Scott of <laughs> a line of pike fish. It's coming yeah. down. They're digging the pike line right now. <laughs> uh, I should also mention I'm reading Nathaniel Philbrick's uh, first of his trilogy on the Revolutionary War. That's a, um, he's amazing. Day. Yeah. I read it before I go to sleep at night, so I get through like literally two paragraphs. I've turned into my dad. I think it takes like three years to finish a book. Yeah. Like paragraphs fall asleep. But, uh, book that we just published that's getting a lot of attention: Dane Ortland's "Gentle and Lowly" on the Heart of Christ. Um, really proud of that book and glad to see it getting attention. You know, one of those. It's hard to publish a book in the midst of uh, a once a century pandemic but hopefully people will 
take advantage of that book and read it. Uh, just this morning, read the prologue for Steve Nichols' biography of R.C. Sproul. Uh, oh, really looking forward to that. Brilliant. Uh, and the, the introduction is uh, takes us to Sproul's final sermon, and even Sproul's final line is, the, you know, the, basically his last public comment. Um, uh, it's it's going to be really nicely done. Um, not a massive biography, but kind of a brisk one and by somebody who knew him really well. So an insider biography. Um, so really could be happy to publish that in 2021. Um, next fall, Carl Truman's uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, Rod Dreher wrote the foreword for it. And uh, I think it's just going to be a very insightful look at how we got to this place in terms of sexual revolution and beyond to the 21st century. A couple of books I'm looking forward to this summer. David Murray uh, did a book not only for teenagers, but also for parents of teenagers. The teenage one is called Why Do I Feel This Way? And the, the parent one is called Why, do my, Why Does My Teenager Feel This Way? Uh, both having to do with anxiety and depression. I don't think there's any books from a Christian perspective dedicated to that topic in a real accessible way to be read by teens. And, you know, we talked about the optimistic side of what's going to come on the other side of this. I think one of the unfortunate side effects is going to be increase in mental health issues uh, from all of the social distancing and, and being at home. Um, also this fall, John Piper's uh, magnum opus on Providence, uh, 400 plus page book that he's he's really started outlining um over 20 years ago so it's going to be everything that, that piper thinks about the providence of god and then uh final one i'll mention and then i'll shut up is christopher ash's three volume commentary on the psalms called praying the psalms in christ a commentary for all who preach and those who pray uh, so going through commentary on every every psalm, uh, looking at it from a Christocentric perspective, how to interpret it, how to preach, how to pray it, um, and then probably a, a fourth volume just um, on interpretive issues beyond just the actual commentary itself. So that's a few years out, but uh, have been reading a few of those entries as Christopher works on them. So so when we'll, everybody we'll so when everybody finishes those books this week. Then we'll come back next week, right? We'll come back next week. We have more books. Hey, I I, I didn't give you all the books. I'm saving some for later. (laughs) Uh, Justin and Colin, thank you. And and really do thank you for the the content that goes through you, Colin, for TGC and for all the books. Uh, Keep buying them up, anyone who's listening. But thank you, Justin, for your part in that. And thank you guys for talking. We will see how this goes and maybe we'll do this again next week or sometime not too far in the future. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin.